A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, out. Wow. it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true stories of how science has affected people's lives. Quick note, we have an upcoming live show in Chicago, February 13th, so if you're around, come on down for that. This week's story is from Brad Lawrence. The story was recorded in July 2013 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. The theme of the evening was Close to Death. In the fifth grade, I was 10 years old, 1983, I learned something. Um, It was the first, last time it happened. Um, and what I learned was in social studies class, and what I learned was about the, uh, the nuclear bomb. Um, I was informed there was a bomb called the nuclear bomb, <laughs> and that one of these could wipe out um, an entire city, just one. And then I was informed that the Soviet Union had the nuclear bomb, And then I was informed the Soviet Union was the mortal enemy of the United States, which was where I lived. (laughs) But it was okay, because we also had the nuclear bomb. In fact, we had enough nuclear bombs that we could, if we wanted to, destroy the entire world one time over. But I should know just for the sake of having all the facts, the Soviet Union had enough nuclear bombs to destroy the world three times over. These numbers seemed important at the time, um, but the general effect they had on me was abject terror. Um, This meant that when I went home from school, and every day I went home from school after that, when I laid on the couch and looked out the window at the crisp, beautiful blue sky. Every time an airplane went through that sky, so far as I was concerned, it was a Soviet bomber coming to drop a nuclear bomb on me. And my family and my neighborhood and my city, and it was all going to be over, a nuclear war would begin, and it was just like, this was going to happen. It was going to happen. And like, this was all I could think about. And the, the monsters of childhood gave way. What kept me up at night, the bump I heard in the night was no longer something under my bed. It was a nuclear warhead falling into the neighbor's above ground pool. That's what was happening. And I was convinced of this. And it was just, it was terrifying to me. But when you're a child, you always have some place that you can go um, for comfort, and that was TV. And uh, but then TV betrayed me because TV put on a movie called The Day After, <laughs> in which a nuclear war is launched upon Kansas and Jason Robards, in particular, apparently. And this presented a whole new fear for me, which was surviving a nuclear war. In which case, apparently, you would wander in a radiated wasteland, scavenging off the dead, until eventually all your skin sloughed off and you died in agony. And as I realized this, sleeping came to an end. And as it came to an end for me, it also came to an end for my mother. 
because I would show up in her doorway at 3 o'clock in the morning, backlit like the kid from Poltergeist, and to complete the effect, the first words out of my mouth would be, what if we all die? <laughs> Followed up by, what if you die and I don't die? And my mother would be confronted with this, and, and you know, here I am having like my first genuine neurotic attack, and she's got to deal with this new parenting challenge. And what she does, the, the plan she comes up with is actually very elegant in its simplicity. She just gives me as much bland reading as she can find and just loathe me down with it. And it's like National Geographic and, uh, and Reader's Digest and her Christian Guidepost magazine and just anything that gives these to me. And the whole point is for me to read myself to sleep and distract myself. And this actually works. It's a great plan. It works well pretty soon. I'm getting back to sleep at a kind of reasonable hour. I'm getting you know, enough sleep to go up and get up and go to school and be kind of normal. Um, and it's working, and I'm good. Until around the same period, um, the news informed us that there was a brand new disease that had popped up. And this disease was called AIDS. And so far, from what they understood about it, it only affected gay people, people having gay sex. I didn't really know what gay sex was, but I was pretty sure that in Missouri I was safe. <laughs> and, uh, and so it was fine, didn't think much about it until a kid my age got AIDS. And then it came out how AIDS was transmitted. And how it was transmitted was through contact with the bodily fluids of strangers. This is what they knew, what they'd figured out. Blood. For any other kid, this may not have been a big deal. For me, it was an issue because of what my mom did for a living. My mother was a nurse, and she did medical exams for insurance companies, which meant that she went to the homes of strangers and collected from them bodily fluids, blood and urine. And then she would bring them home and prepare them for being shipped off to a laboratory to be processed. And where she did the preparations to be shipped off to the laboratory, well, she did this on our dining room table. <laughs> Business was great. My mom was doing a lot of work, which meant that my dining room table was front to back blood and urine samples. And to me, at this point, from what the news had told me, that meant that my dining room table was covered in AIDS. It was all AIDS, and it was only a matter of time before someone in the family came in contact with these bodily fluids of these strangers, and we'd, and we'd get AIDS. Like, someone in the family would get AIDS, we'd all get AIDS then, and then, like, we'd start dying one by one in this horrible, painful way they were describing on the news every night, and, and this was going to happen. It was, gonna, it was inevitable. This was going to happen, and now I'm up at 3 in the clock in the morning again. What if we all get AIDS? And my mom sort of doubles down on her plan. She's giving me like, more things, and now she's giving me, like, a... Uh, the Tracker series by Tom Brown and like the, the collected works of, you know, um, I'm blanking on his name though, Jack London. Um, and just like whatever, just like just plowing through this stuff and it's, it's, it's working not quite as well as before, but, I, I mean, it's, it, but it's still kind of working and I'm getting to sleep and I'm, 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 it's okay. Uh, it, it's kind of, it's going all right. And then one day uh, I am walking past the dining room just in time for my mother to prick her thumb with a used needle. I'm walking past and I hear, ow. And I turn and I look and my mother is sitting there at the other end of the dining room table 
and she has a used needle in one hand, and she's looking at her thumb on the other hand, there's a little bubble of blood is accumulating there, and then she looks up and she sees me. And she knows what's going on in my mind. It's all over my face. My mother has AIDS. That's it. My mother, right in front of me just now, she has AIDS, and that's it. She's going to die. My mother's going to die of AIDS, and then uh, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to be orphaned or left in the care of my stepfather, which is worse, and like this is going to happen. Like There's nothing, there's nothing that can d- be done about this now. And now sleeping, there's no sleeping after this. National Geographic, Reader's Digest, they can't save us from this. Though, like This is going to happen. My mother is going to die, and I become a white, hot ball of terror. You can see my fear from space. I am just vibrating through solid objects, and this goes on for nearly a week and a half. No sleeping, no eating, unable to talk about anything else. I am just shaking constantly. And then finally, after about a week and a half, this my mother comes downstairs where I'm sitting in the middle of the living room, and she comes down and she says, Brad, I gave myself an AIDS test. It came back negative. I'm not sick. I'm not going to die. It's fine. And almost as if by magic, or rather by the irrational reasonings of a child's mind, my terror kind of dissipated. And from there, I began to sort of get back to normal. It was like somehow in my kid's brain, the calculus was that the angel of death had visited us. The worst possible thing that could happen had happened, and we had survived. The angel of death had visited us and passed on and taken no one, and we were safe. It was like a promise, and I was good, and I began to sleep again. And it wasn't until decades later when I was considering this time in my life when I realized that in 1983 you could not give yourself an AIDS test less than two weeks after a possible infection. You couldn't give yourself an AIDS test less than six months after a possible infection. You certainly couldn't get the results back. And in fact, at that time, AIDS had sprung up on the medical community with such force and such suddenness that the medical community was spending all of its time sort of chasing after it, trying to get a grip on what this thing was and what it meant. And in many ways, they were as scared as all of us civilians were. And all of the protocols they had put in place were really just band-aids. They were slapping on this thing until they could figure out what was really going on and just how dangerous and how infectious this was. And so while my mother had told me whatever I needed to hear so that I could sleep through the night, I have no idea to this day how many nights she lay awake with no one there to tell her what she needed to hear so she could sleep through the night. Thank you.
That was Brad Lawrence. Brad has performed sold-out houses everywhere from South by Southwest to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and can regularly be seen contributing to storytelling, stand-up, variety, and burlesque shows throughout New York. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org, where we have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. Also, we depend on listeners like you for our support. If you're able, please consider donating at storycollider.org slash donate. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Rose Avalith. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Union Hall for hosting the show, and to my mom for being a therapist so that sort of thing wouldn't happen. Thanks for listening. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.